Robert and I are going to sit down for virtual chats with people using technologies developed by IBM to deal with the unique challenges the world is facing today. In this episode, we'll be focusing on how consumers, retailers, and supply chains adapt in the midst of a pandemic. And for this subject, we're going to be in conversation with Luke Niazzi, the IBM Global Managing Director for Consumer Industries, and Carl Holler, who is a partner at the Consumer Center of Competency at IBM. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Smart Talks, the Tech Stuff podcast has already released the first four episodes of the series in its feed. You can find them on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Just look up Tech Stuff and click on the episodes labeled Smart Talks. And stay tuned for upcoming Smart Talks episodes here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, which will be published in our feed in the coming weeks. And now straight on to our conversation with Luke and Carl. All right. Well, I guess probably the best place to start off would be to have you each introduce yourself. So uh, Luke and Carl, can you each uh, introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about your background? Yeah. Hi, I'm Luke Nayazi. I'm the Global Managing Director for Consumer Industries for IBM. Uh, Consumer Industries are retail, consumer products, and the agribusiness. And I have the pleasure of leading that for IBM uh, globally across all of the things that IBM does, and that's everything from our research through our technology and our services and our industry platforms. And I'm Carl Haller. Uh, I'm part of Luke's team and lead our Consumer Industry Center of Competency, uh, which is part of the IBM Services business unit. And we work, me and my team, we work with clients around the world on um, some of the more challenging issues that they're facing that require deep industry skills and expertise. Well, we uh, really appreciate you joining us today. So one of the main things that we were going to focus on today was supply chains and how supply chains are adapting during a pandemic. Uh, And so to start off, uh, I I think we should think about what supply chains are. They're one of the many features of our world that I think can remain mostly invisible to us until they break down. You know, it's only by your failure or by their failure that we suddenly sort of notice them. Uh, Can you provide a little background on how like normal shopping behavior, like buying a frozen pizza or buying a pair of jeans, relies on supply chains? So, so first of all, in terms of the fundamentals of supply chains, um, when, you, when you buy something at a store, uh, it's there because it's been um, distributed to the store. Uh, that means it's traveled from somewhere and it's got to uh, where it needs to be. But behind that, it's been made somewhere. Uh, that means that there's been a factory where it's um, been made. Uh, and to be able to make it, and let's take that pizza example, then the ingredients that have gone into that pizza have got to have been sourced. And so that's what we start to get into the kind of the fundamentals of the supply chain, because that means uh, the, the bits for the dough, the tomato base, the herbs, the cheese, the toppings, they all need to come together from a range of suppliers. And those suppliers can be, you know, very broadly distributed. And so you're getting more into the unpacking of that product. And then Going further back, well, actually, all of those things need to be either uh, produced or grown. If they're natural, they're grown. But if they are, um, you know, like artificial flavorings, and they have to be manufactured. And so that simple thing of buying a pizza and getting a pizza has to go through all of um, those stages of uh, the retail, the distribution and the logistics, the actual manufacturing, all the way through to the sourcing of materials. And of course, if you then take something else like a pair of jeans, um, it's the same concept, but of course, all of the processes that make up a pair of jeans. And so you've got to get them to the store. They've got to be traveled. Often they're traveling from very far away because they're made um, in the lowest, most effective cost manufacturing typically. Um, And then when you think about everything that goes into a pair of jeans, well, There's uh, all the cotton, but there's all of the dyeing that goes into it. And that's a complex process in itself. And you've got to take care of that in in an effective way. Um, And of course, then that goes back to the the source materials. That's what we mean by a supply chain. But I'll let Carl explain a little bit about the complexities that are in supply chains um, in the retail world. Yeah, thanks, Luke. Um, You know, the the thing that I think most people, I would agree with you, probably understand that, you know, the things that they buy are made by someone and grown somewhere in concept, but they don't always understand 
how complex the supply chains have gotten. And whether we're talking about a food supply chain or we're talking about a fashion or clothing supply chain or a packaged goods supply chain, there are often upwards of a dozen different parties, maybe even more, um, who are involved in the work that happens to go from raw materials, most of which, many of which come from a farm, um, through the various stages of processing, um, manufacturing, um, uh, distributing, selling, to get goods into you know, a refrigerator or a pantry or a dresser drawer. Um, and and these, these different companies uh, tend to involve multiple geographies. Sometimes goods go back and forth around the world once or twice um, as they get from raw materials into finished goods. Um, and, and that's usually done in order to get goods to consumers in the most efficient and lowest cost manner possible. Um, the, the thing that the, the supply chain relies on today is it relies on a couple of basic assumptions. Um, one, that goods and capital flow freely across borders um, and second, that most consumers are willing to make the trade-off of really knowing and understanding how, where, and by whom goods are made in exchange for getting the goods whenever they want, wherever they want, and at a, of a low and attractive price point. Well, that actually uh, brings to mind a, a question I wanted to ask about uh, some of the ways that values guiding the formation of supply chains could actually be in conflict. So uh, the idea of like cost and convenience versus energy efficiency or sustainability or just in time philosophy. And if you can explain what that is uh, versus like uh, a supply chain being robust against interruptions. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So there's quite a few parts to that uh, Joe, so I'll try to unpack them uh, in, in various pieces. So, so, so the first thing is that um, you know, if we if we just cast our minds back over the last twenty years in the consumer industries, you know, particularly around food and you know fashion, we've kind of accelerated through an environment where people can kind of get pretty much whatever they want, wherever they want, any time of the year. And so you can get, you know, fruit all the year round and you can get your berries all around. What's what's occurring around that, of course, is that they're coming from many different places to be able to get those berries all the year round. And we've, um, you know, through the digitization of commerce, learned to expect that if I want something that is shown on my tablet that I, that I can search on, that I can get it delivered to my home at a, um, you know, a, a reasonable time. And so, you know, the, the what's undergone the supply chains is, of course, is a... Is a, is a drive to efficiency and cost reduction and a value delivery. And so, you know, we as consumers have been, honestly said, a little bit selfish in terms of expecting anything, anytime, anywhere in the world at the lowest kind of price point. And without really having due consideration of the consequences of what it's taking to get that piece of food into the supermarket or that a garment, you know, into the store that I'm looking to buy from or on, online. Now, what is interesting is that, um, and so by the way, that's called convenience. You know, it's all about convenience retailing. Uh, and we, we, we've had the decades of convenience retailing. What's interesting is that at the beginning of this year, uh, Carl and um, members of my team working with the National Retail Federation um, uh, and our IBM Institute of Business Value did a piece of research um, with over 19,000 consumers in, I think it was 28 countries, if I remember, across all demographics. Uh, and we tried to understand what was occurring in uh, buyer behaviors. And what the study showed, and it's available, you can download it, uh, is that there were kind of three major categories. And the convenience category is still the biggest category. 41% of the respondents were convenience buyers uh, looking for value, looking for cost effectiveness, looking for that fulfillment wherever they needed at the lowest price point. But 40%, almost the same number, were in a category that we called purpose-driven consumers. These are consumers who care about 
um, where things have come from, the journey that they've been on, um, how they've been made, uh, what kind of energy was used in them, what's the uh, carbon footprint, uh, whether they are sustainable um, in nature. And, and what, what we're seeing is uh, this rise of the purpose-driven consumer. Um, there are a couple of other categories, but and the other categories are, you know, those that follow the kind of the brand and the higher segments, and they kind of are more aligned to the that pure brand brand value. But but I believe in twenty twenties we are really at the point in time when we're in a decade where, in the main, people are starting to care much more about where things have come from and how are they made and what are some of the implications to the planet and society around that sourcing. We're becoming more responsible in our uh, consumption. So uh, in terms of uh, that um, rise of the purpose-driven consumer, what we're now seeing is that um, in the respondents that we surveyed, about 7 out of 10 are prepared to make uh, choices and decisions that are uh, reflect their drive for whatever their purpose is, sustainability, lower use of plastic, evidence of reuse uh, in their purchasing. And even more fascinating is that we're, we're seeing that they're prepared to pay more for those companies that are able to demonstrate and prove that their products have been made in a more um, uh, sustainable or environmentally friendly way. Uh, the survey actually showed that uh, people were prepared to pay up to a third more uh, for that. What's also interesting is this this trend of that 40% group is across age profiles. So it's not just a certain age profile. It's, you know, all age profiles are, um, are showing that tendency. And uh, it's not just a, um, a, a highly developed Western economy type of perspective. It actually per- permeates across um, uh, a global context and different stages of economic development. So, so we believe that we are absolutely in the era of um, what was becoming purpose-driven consumption. Now, the third part of your question is, you know, the kind of the dilemma that we find ourselves in right now. And uh, obviously, um, with the global COVID nineteen pandemic, there was an immediate rush. Uh, to people to kind of stock up and and get you know, basic goods. It was food, it was grocery, it was sanitary products, it was uh, kitchen toweling, it was bathroom t- um, uh, toweling, etc. Massive push for that. And and actually, if you kind of look at the um, the results and they're kind of they're publicly available on you know, stock market market and other reports, that food and grocery and kind of basic sanitary health and and wellness type category, that is continuing to have significant demand at the moment right now, Uh, albeit that the other categories of what we consider in retail have clearly experienced a slowing in this environment um, uh, because of the fact that they can't get to stores and there's only a certain amount of uh, the business that's online. And so uh, what is going to be interesting, and we can definitely unpack this a bit further, is what is going to happen? What are the implications of this pandemic continuing and how it's going to change or alter different parts of what we see in the supply chain and whether these things that we saw in terms of this convenience versus purpose, how how is that going to play out over time? One of the impacts that we see from COVID-19 is that place and people are both increasing in importance. Um, they're of all, as Luke was saying, that, that 40% who are purpose-driven are thinking about broader issues and some are thinking about sustainability and they're thinking about their own personal values. What we're seeing now is that as safety and personal, personal safety, family health becomes paramount, more people are concerned about how things were made where they made and who's touched them along the way than they were, you know, just just eight weeks ago. Um, so, so that's becoming something that is paramount, perhaps even for some of those people who were otherwise predisposed toward price and convenience. Well, that's interesting. It makes me wonder about. Um unintended positive effect of even irrational concerns. Like I know that there were people who were concerned, um, 
in the early days of the pandemic about products coming from China and like the idea that they could get infected by the virus from that. Now, of course, like the, that's not a real concern. You know, uh, the virus, by the time people were concerned about this, it was all over the world anyway, and the virus wouldn't survive the shipping time. So it was like a, a totally irrational concern, but could lead to people just generally being more aware of like, oh, wait a minute, the products I buy do have to come from a place and there's something behind them. And and normally like, uh, I mean, I, I can even admit this in myself. Most of the time, I just don't even think about that. You just buy it at the store. It, like that, that whole history is completely invisible. I think you're exactly right. Whether it's something we're buying in a, in a, you know, in a mall store, you know, home, something for the home or something for, uh, for ourselves, um, or whether it's groceries you're buying and we're just so used to getting, you know, fresh tomatoes, fresh fruits and vegetables in the winter. We probably don't really think that all of those were grown and transported here. Um, and now I, I would agree with you. There is going to be a bit more awareness of that across the board. I mean, what, of course, uh, has occurred with um, the, the pandemic has been a massive lockdown of uh, people pretty much around the entirety of the world, albeit at different times, and a lockdown of transportation systems, um, initially people, but also um, harder controls around borders, uh, much less uh, flight um, transportation. And, and, of course, every time a plane flies to a country, not only is it taking people to country, but it's also taking some kind of produce, uh, typically as as part of the cargo. And so, one one of the consequences of the pandemic is that um, the availability of supply in this globally connected network that we have that delivers us anything, anytime, anywhere, has had to deal with this massive contraction in the practicalities of transportation and logistics and a tightening up, and. The, that combined with the peaks in demand, and we know what kind of demand peaked early on. We, talk, we talked about the sanitary products, but also what peaked very early on were things like uh, packaged products, um, you know, tins of uh, soup, whether it's Campbell's soup or Heinz or whatever your, your preference is. And what also peaked is things like uh, dried uh, products like pasta. Um, now, I, I live in London and I live in um, Europe, and most of our dried pasta comes from um, Italy. Yeah? And of course, Italy was one of the countries that was locked down the hardest and impacted the hardest early on um, in uh, you know, Q1. And, and consequently, and it's still taken a little bit of time, you know, it took a, quite a long time for dried pasta to be readily available back on the shelves because there was a disruption in that supply chain. Now, what, what, what starts to occur is, of course, the supply chains are gradually recovering, transportation opens up, and so it's kind of less of that shock. But the other thing that's occurring is that if you've got demand for products, um, you know, and you are in the business of providing those products to, you know, let's keep with food and grocery, to your customers, you're going to start to work through alternative sources of supply. And so what this is also driven is um, companies starting to look at alternative sources of supply so that they can meet their demand. And that in itself is driving, because of this constraint on transportation, a, a shift from global demand to what I call kind of global local, which is I need to be more balanced. And if I can get it locally, it might be more of a preference. Now, at a very practical level, you can see that if you are you know going out and if you're still buying food because um what's what's occurring if you're going out to buy your food is not everyone is going to a supermarket or a big superstore um what they're doing is they're combining that shop with a greater propensity to buy from local stores whether it's the local vegetable store or the, the local uh, butcher store and so what is occurring is a greater awareness of where things are available and I think that's been driven very much by a kind of a needs perspective. But I think over time, these two forces, this kind of longer term trend that we talked about around purpose driven consumption and people starting to be more aware of um, where food is coming from or where goods are coming from and what the alternatives are, is going to drive a different mix in that supply chain that we talked about to be more more regional rather than global. And I think that might mean over time 
us um, ultimately driving a better, you know, uh, a better carbon footprint for the uh, for the food that we consume, but also it might also help get a a better redistribution of value in that food value chain to allow the smaller corner shop to survive alongside the big store formats. Um, and I think we're seeing you know, some of those changes start to ripple through. So, uh, Luke and Carl, have there been any um, major challenges uh, from like uh, from food supply and demand or in uh, other industries, even things that would be considered non-essential like clothing uh, that have been presented by the pandemic situation that we haven't talked about yet that, that you would like to address? One, one of the things that that we've seen uh, with covid is that the food business runs two parallel but largely disconnected supply chains. Um, it all start all the food starts on farms, not always the same farms, but but certainly starts on farms. And then from there, part of that food runs through the supply chain that ends up on a grocery store shelf that we as consumers go out and buy and bring home. Part of that food runs through a different supply chain that ends up in either restaurants or food service. Um, as food service and restaurants effectively shut down, you know, near 100% shutdown of most of those across most of the U.S. and frankly most of the world, that supply chain dried up, and we were left in a situation where the consumer supply chain had shortages. Um, we had shortages of you know fresh goods and dried goods, shelf-stable goods. And yet we also had situations where farmers and distributors to the, um, to the restaurant and food service supply chain had an overstock of goods. And so that one of the challenges has been how can we figure out a way to better integrate those supply chains or at least provide better visibility of what actual products exist where so that there could potentially be some intermixing. This is, uh, this is one of those things that the move toward efficiency over the past you know, 20, 30 plus years um, at the expense of agility has cost us. And I, and I think what we see going forward is a little bit more balance between efficiency and agility such that you can make a brand, um, a manufacturer, a retailer, you know, anyone involved in the, in the supply chain can make different decisions in a more dynamic manner and change things on the fly. Because because there are hurdles, I understand, in in the way of taking, say, pasta that was in the restaurant supply chain and switching it over to the consumer, uh, individual consumer supply chain. Yes, there there are hurdles. There are some hurdles that, uh, and it depends on the product category, there are some hurdles that are regulatory in nature. Um, There are some hurdles in terms of the, um, not as much the manufacturing process, but potentially the quantities and the pack sizes Um, There are some hurdles in the packaging and how those goods are aggregated together. Uh, I know just, you know, my family, we uh, purchased some fresh seafood from a seafood purveyor that normally sells to restaurants. And it was one, excellent, uh, but two, the quantity that you have to buy is not the normal amount that you might buy in a grocery store. So you have to, you know, they've had to adjust Um, They're also not used to bringing things directly to consumers. You know, they're used to a simpler supply chain. Um, They're not used to transacting by credit card with consumers. You know, so there are a lot of hurdles in the, you know, the making and moving of things. There are also a lot of hurdles on the transactional side. Hmm. Uh, So this is interesting. Yeah. So that kind of thing, would that explain why we could see these strange disconnects where, say, I don't know, the, the dairy shelf at your grocery store might be very bare, and yet you also see video online of dairy producers having to, like, discard unused things. Yes, exactly, exactly. And, and you can see, you know, on, on one end, so, so one, the, there are short, you know, the shortages, so the dairy shelves being empty also then drives up the price to the consumer, 
uh, because there is, as, as Luke was saying earlier, there's a big mismatch in supply and demand in one piece of the supply chain, yet in another piece, the mismatch in supply and demand is the opposite. There's an excess of demand. So despite the higher price consumers are paying for milk, farmers are having to get rid of milk because they don't have anywhere to put it in any any place to uh, any place to sell it into because they may not have that same access um, to the supply chain that that serves consumers directly. Actually, I've been very impressed with what some of the uh, major grocers in the U.S. have been doing, where they're actually starting to now buy up excess supply and sometimes incorporate it into their own business, but other times, frankly, just donate it so that it's at least getting to needy consumers to, to help them you know, get, through, get through this crisis. Oh, that's great. I mean, it's also great, yeah, to, to see some of that waste being avoided. Luke, we were talking the other day before this call, and you mentioned something uh, about the, the sometimes kind of staggering amount of waste that already happens just as like an unfortunate byproduct of the way that supply chains uh, are, exist today, before the pandemic even. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Joe. And so, you know, the, the, the industries that we're talking about um, produce a um, a massive amount of uh, goods that don't end up um, being consumed. Either you have um, you know, food in the food supply chain um, that ends up being beyond its data and then goes to waste, or you have you know in the the fashion industry uh, a lot of uh, produce that are made and even after discounting and multiple campaigns are still left. And end up, you know, being effectively wasteful. And so, um, in its entirety, you know, the you know, there's about a third of the supply chains that are producing stuff that goes to waste. And this isn't because there isn't demand. There's demand around the world. It's just about where it's ending up at that particular point in time. And that 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 waste is obviously a massive uh, impact for the planet. It's it's the second largest. CO2 producer uh, as an industry set of industries behind the global energy system. And so if we can do things that um, make the demand much more connected to the supply in a more integrated fashion, then there's this opportunity to not only fulfill people and give them important information that they want about where things have come from and and how it's going to affect them, but there's also an opportunity to get a closer integration of that demand signal back into the supply side of um, uh, the world. And therefore, we can be more responsible in terms of how the supply chains come together. And I'm, I, I, I think it's going to, it's going to take... Uh, a decade to manifest itself, but I I absolutely believe that um, technologies like blockchain, when connected to uh, digital technologies um, that we interact with, i.e. Um, the smart app that's on your phone as you're buying the food or the data that you get when you're buying online, if you start to connect those choices, we can start to drive much more holistic um, uh, understanding of what's going on and ultimately a better use uh, and, and a more set of sustainable supply chains. And so r- right now, you know, companies like uh, Carrefour in Europe, if you go and scan the QR code that is on uh, the organic chicken, you can see the whole history of where that chicken has come from and prove that it's organic. And you can see you know, where the food has come from, etc. Now, I'm not saying that every shop is going to scan every product, but it starts to drive in kind of a, a change and an understanding of where things are coming from. And that in itself can drive um, more sustainable usage. So, so this problem is very substantial, but it's also one of the big problems that we see as being addressed in this decade because of the availability of the technologies that we see uh, in front of us. And, and by the way, these te- technologies um, you know, they, they are they, they are cloud driven and they are connecting different parts of the supply chain business network. Are also some of the technologies that are that companies are using to reconfigure um, their supply chains right now because they're saying, okay, I understand um, who's available in terms of what produce in this region, and they are applying that to get better supply to the demand that they have. Um, you know, similarly, you know, I touched on 
what AI was doing uh, or is doing in terms of uh, the end-to-end processes, and it's prevalent across the whole of the value chain. But um, you know that AI is allowing consumer goods manufacturers to do optimization of demand and supply in terms of they, they know what they've produced and they know where it is physically in the supply chain and the distribution network, and they can sense at a hyper-local basis where the demand is for those products, and they can drive a better matching of that supply to the demand. That means that ultimately the things that they produce are sold and they make money, but it also means that less things go to waste. And and so so these technologies that you know, I touched on when I was talking about Robert's question also have a very important uh, implication in terms of driving better sustainability, as I touched upon, but also having a better optimization of the hyperlocal needs that we're seeing right now. And I think we're going to continue to see these waves of hyperlocal needs uh, over the next you know, six to 12 months. Some of our listeners may have heard about the existential need for digital commerce 3.0 in order to keep the supply chain healthy, not only during but after COVID-19. Uh, c- can you walk us through what digital commerce 3.0 really is? I'll take a pass at this because um, I think I think when we talk about you know digital commerce 3.0 or retail 3.0, you know we have to get it what a what a definition is, and and I think you know that's really a term that we would use uh, within IBM as as an industry flavor of a a broader umbrella term that we call the cognitive enterprise, um, and this is really an enterprise that um, understands, gathers information, uh, uh, creates insights, um, acts on those insights, and learns over time. You know, an enterprise that has many more of the capabilities that we as humans have rather than just being a great big machine. Um, And I think many traditional enterprises right now are essentially great big machines, and they've been tuned for efficiency, um, just as most machines and engines are tuned for efficiency. Um, what we're seeing now, um, and, and I would say this is in, it's in digital commerce, it's in all commerce, because most commerce has a digital element to it. Um, and it's really all the way upstream from the point of commerce for the consumer up to the point of growing or producing. Um, what we're seeing is a, you know, a greater need to sense and respond in real time to better understand the variable dynamics in demand and then match both supply to that and match, frankly, all of your operations to those variabilities in, in, uh, in demand. This has existed for the last five or 10 years. We've known about this. Um, with COVID-19, it's really exacerbated things that we've known about, but haven't always really needed to do anything about because the variations in demand were relatively minor, might be a couple of points up or down and might be happening on a small scale. Now we're seeing swings in demand 50%, 70% up and down at a local level, depending on where Um, outbreaks have been taking place, where countries are flattening the curve, where countries are getting back to normal, um, or even cities and localities um, are are reacting and responding in different ways. So it's now become business critical to understand which parts of the United States or the world are are open for business in a more traditional manner, and which parts are still locked down because you're going to have such massive swings in demand that the success of your business depends on knowing that. Um, so that, that's really th- this ability to, um, to really sense and respond in real time and the ability to act on all of what you're sensing um, is really at the heart of, uh, of you know, retail 3.0, industry 3.0, however you want to phrase it. The ramifications of digital commerce affect more than just the retailer. The ramifications are felt upstream um, to the uh, consumer products companies as well. 
Um, frankly, because right now the business model at the retail level, it, it certainly in groceries, is not supporting the growth of online shopping. The cost to pick, pack, fulfill, and distribute those goods to consumers' homes um, is quite expensive. And consumers, except maybe in a crisis period, are not willing to pay a premium for that. So some of that will now move upstream to the manufacturer. And so they're going to have to think about new routes to um, get goods to a pickup location, to new routes to get goods into stores. Potentially, they might be drop shipping goods from their own warehouses directly to consumers' homes. That may also make them think about pack sizes in different ways, how they aggregate goods together, um, especially if you're thinking about traditional center core packaged goods that have a longer shelf life. Um, we may see something like um, pack sizes increase in order to make the logistics work out for consumers who are shopping online. We may also see consumers start to adopt auto replenishment methods to buy those goods where they get a steady supply of things, you know, delivered to them every month in exchange for the convenience of not having to go to the store to buy those things and put them in your basket and load them in your car and drive them home. So we're, we're going to see a lot of ramifications of this upstream um, on the producer side, manufacturer side as well. Yeah, if I can give a, a, a very real example of that to share, and it's an example that was actually uh, aired on our Think 2020 digital event that we just had um, and Mark Foster, our SVP of uh, services, interviewed um, uh, uh, one of the SVPs from uh, Frito-Lay, uh, and they talked about the digital transformation that they've driven to change their direct delivery model, um, which is actually the biggest private fleet of truck deliveries uh, you know, in the U.S., um, 25,000 trucks a day being optimized to get Frito-Lay products all the way through their um, supply chains into uh, wherever they need to be distributed, whether that's at a store or at other locations. Well, not every CPG company has a model as advanced as that. And what Carl's alluding to is, well, how do you start to kind of plug in those kind of engines that you know, Frito-Lay has into my model if I'm a a beer company and I'm used to just distributing to certain places and then uh, I'm used to the restaurant companies getting them from those places and getting them to the end consumers. Well, right now that model has died down significantly. So how do I get my beer products much more direct to uh, the consumers, um, not just relying on, on, on what is coming through the supermarkets? And so you can see how you know, you know, a CP company like you know a beer manufacturer has got to think around next generation of digital for its B two B model. But actually, they may have to get into next generation of delivery into a B two C model, and it's that kind of change that we're that we're going to see being accelerated. And that's companies having to adopt um, more Commerce three point zero type capabilities over and above what they had previously. So uh, in trying to imagine how technology could help businesses and supply chains adapt and become more like a human, less like a, you know, an automated machine, something that, that is able to have some agility and an and insight into the uh, process overall, how much would this kind of uh, technology just be about – you know, seeing more of the data that's currently available at every step in the supply chain, incorporating that and adapting, and how much of it would actually be predictive? Because I imagine that big problems come through in, in at each stage in the supply chain where somebody sees, you know, they can't tell signal from noise. Like suddenly the, the dairy shelves are in, empty one day and you don't know, like, is this part of a trend that I need to adapt to or is this just some weird fluke today? Yeah, no, it's a really good question, Joe. And look, the data is there. It's the, the data is there in each part of the process that we describe. It's there at the point of purchase. It's it's there in the transportation logistics that got that product to that point of purchase. It's there in the uh, manufacturing. Uh, it's there in the the, the raw goods uh, produce. But each of those are many different companies and they're many different segments of the industry and therefore they're very siloed. 
And so even though the, the data is there and each of those subparts of the end-to-end value chain are being optimized in their own individual piece, what's not necessarily occurring is the optimization of the whole. And so, you know, the the opportunity in the the that that kind of visibility question that you're kind of reaching out to, Joe, is is how do you start to overlay these kind of broader platforms of of um, enablement? Um, so, what I mean by how do you pull get data together that's in disparate parts uh, and in different companies where you can make it available into the cloud? How can you analyze? data sets at scale um, that are, you know, massive data sets solving really complex, uh, highly undeterministic um, problems. Well, you can chuck the power of AI into, uh, first of all, what you do actually is you apply AI to the individual um, sub-processes and then you start to optimize sub-parts of the system. And then later on, you start to optimize the fuller system. Um, uh, Not possible, by the way, for everything, but but definitely possible for certain parts of it, um, and then of course you, um, you leverage this visibility platform. That is, I can track and trace anything through that whole supply chain if it's already in the blockchain. So you can see how um, the connectivity and enabling technologies are starting to come together that allows you to drive a much smarter way of running these businesses end to end and elevating beyond the process or the sub-segment optimization that's currently occurring. Uh, and, you know, it, it needs the the benefit of this data to be shared in the way that I described for people to actually say, well, actually, by my sharing this data with here, the, 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 the sum of the game gets better. And that's the kind of things that we're working on. You know, I've explained uh, or I made reference to Food Trust earlier around um, that visibility of food it was it was started for safety, but it can track and trace um, pretty much any characteristic you want as as food moves through the supply chain that 's going to be hugely important. Uh, a lot of the techniques that are being applied as AI techniques to e g the energy industry and there 's a lot of AI that goes into that and i 've been involved in that in the past um, can be applied to the AI of e g farming and that 's what we 're doing with um, our Watson uh, data platform for agriculture that leverages our um, weather company assets and uh, the ability to connect a data from multiple data sources um, in different parts of the value chain. Well, that's where you need the ability to do things like uh, multi-cloud management. And that's where um, our acquisition of Red Hat and the capabilities that that company brings starts to come to bear. So we have all of the ingredients to start to solve this problem and ultimately make much better use of um, the world's finite resources and and therefore reduce waste. But it's about applying these digital transformative technologies to the the bigger parts of the systems and the end-to-end than just trying to solve the individual components. So Luke and Carl, uh, wh- wh- how do you see um, retail in, you know, physical uh, storefront retail and digital commerce adapting after COVID-19? Well, I, I think, um, you know, some of the things that we've been talking about are going to continue to accelerate. I think uh, this has driven a, you know, a, a significant shift to um, recognize that there is an increased need to uh, enhance the technology enablement of that end-to-end um, supply chain and retail experience. And this uh, enhancement of digital capability, um, you know, people are going to understand that they can do more and buy more and experience more um, in a digital context. And so I think we're going to see, you know, uh, a step change occur in, the, in, in this period of uh, how much is able to be done um, digitally. And then you know, right now, people are just figuring out how to get it done and how to make it work and how to stitch together the fulfillment. But but the next thing that will come is how do I make that a great and beautiful experience and how do I drive loyalty and values and all of the other things that you want. And so I think there's going to be a continuation of uh, digital experience enhancement 
uh, very pervasive across multiple segments of the industry, continuing at quite some pace post the event, uh, post the crisis. I, I think it's it's too early to be able to be precise about what's going to happen, um, you know, to stores. Um, you know, I think. You know, I, I think there will be a uh, a rebalancing of the kind of the physical footprints that companies have because they will be driving more um, more digitally, and therefore there will be some form of reduction in physical footprint. But again, when you have that physical footprint, uh, you, you know you need to make sure that it's delivering what the customer wants, um, and is you know for for some of the higher end things that we do. Uh, what the customer customer really wants from a, an experience perspective. So, I, I do think the ongoing digitization of the store will continue, but it might be for fewer stores over time. Uh, and of course, you know these things that we've talked about in terms of supply chain resilience, supply chain responsiveness, supply chain intelligence. Well, that's going to be needed irrespective of where the channel is that you're fulfilling. And so we're going to see that ongoing trend. So I, I do think this will, will result in an ongoing and continuous uh, level of innovation and enhancements in the various components that we've talked about um, uh, today. I believe you know, the, the COVID-19 crisis is extremely disruptive at all levels of the business Frankly, whether you're an essential brand, an essential retailer, or whether you're considered non-essential, um, it's disruptive in different ways. And as we work our way through this, um, and as Luke said earlier, we believe this is this is going to stay with us for a while, um, and there's going to be a continued variability, you know, high degree of variability of what's happening with consumers, which then impacts up through retail and uh, uh, consumer products, even up to farms. As this ripples through over the next you know, 18 to maybe 24 months, we see that it's probably going to spur companies to do things that they know they should have done over the past two, three, four years, but have not always found the means or the impetus to take action on. You know, companies, when we talk to our clients, you know, they know they need to be better enabled with digital commerce, whether that's B2B or B2C. They know they need to enable customers to shop seamlessly across channels or touch points. Um, they know they need more insight and analytics on data that they have in their company and on data that's out freely available or for pay available in the marketplace, but available data. And they know they need to be able to adjust their operations so that they can be more kind of intelligent and responsive based on all of that data. They've known they need to change their cost model. They've known they need to reduce costs. They know they need to balance agility and efficiency um, but they, that's a difficult thing to do. It's a fundamental change to the way many of these businesses operate. Um, and one of the things I think we will see coming out of uh, COVID-19 and, and in the middle of COVID-19 even is companies are starting to address these things that were important but not urgent. And now they've become both urgent and important. And that's, that tends to spur our clients, uh, spur every company into action. So you've been talking about what you expect to see. What would you love to see? Like, what, what would what kind of adaptations or changes do you think would be the most ideal? So, one thing I would love to see is more conscious consumerism taking place. Um, I think, as again, as we've talked about a little earlier, consumers are being more concerned now about uh, about people and place and where things come from and how they're made. We have, we're in an industry that has a lot of waste to push goods out to consumers. And frankly, consumers contribute a lot of that waste themselves. I think if we overall start to adjust toward fewer things that potentially mean more to us, that would be a better thing for everyone. 
Mine is similar, Joe. I, I mean, I think we've been talking about a lot of re-engineering of the capabilities that make up the enterprise. We've been re-engineering of commerce, re-engineering of uh, supply chain, re-engineering of manu- manufacturing uh, and sourcing activities. We are going to go through a major period of companies re-engineering themselves to respond to um, what the new um, normal looks like. Wouldn't it be great if the re-engineering had kind of sustainability uh, uh, at the heart of um, that re-engineering so that we fulfill customers' needs and demands, but we're doing that at a much more responsive and a much more balanced uh, regional, with balanced a global way, and we bring back that sense of understanding and identity about where things are made from and how they're consumed all the way through the value chain that we kind of lost in the the last 20 years. Wouldn't it be great if this this, this period brings that back into place because it's going to make ultimately a more sustainable society. It means that things will be better distributed to um, the broader population in the world and it means that th- less things will go to waste and that would be a, a fantastic outcome, I think. All right, so there you have it. Thanks once more to Luke and Carl for taking time out of their busy days to chat with us here. And if you would like to learn more, go to ibm.com slash smart talks. That's ibm.com slash smart talks. And if you would like to catch up on other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And wherever that happens to be, we just ask that you rate, review, and subscribe. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.